Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Recorded live. Good evening. Welcome to Aldo's Targeted Individual Community Call. It's Sunday, May 15, 2016. So let's see what's been going on with me while I've had a cold. I was just starting to get over it. Um, I was supposed to go down to L.A., but had an argument with my niece. So I set my boundary lines and decided that I wasn't going. Probably was for better because it gave me a couple of days to um, get over this cold. been dealing with um, cyber or computer network exploitation. I think that's the best word to call it through the, the branch of the electronic warfare. <clears throat> and... Um, had some problems. I couldn't get my the Wi-Fi to work in my cell phone. It would not recognize my home network, but it recognized everything else. They said my SSID was hidden, so they unhid it, and then uh, I was able to at least see my own network, but the only problem was it still wouldn't let me log in, so that was through my cell phone. I was on the phone with T-Mobile, and then went on the phone with Comcast, and then they were trying to do some stuff uh, to figure out what was going on because they weren't seeing the network conveniently hidden, I guess, that I hid it, but it's just all this exploitation. Um, I lost my ability to view the screenshot. So, you know, when you take a screenshot on your computer, when you open it, it came up blank. So I have that on video. I I posted the two links, uh, that link, and then um, I noticed on my Safari, you know how you have the URL, and then right next to that box on top, right to the right of it usually, there's a little uh, search. It looks like a search icon. And then you can type into that side of the box instead of typing into the, directly through the URL address. Well, that disappeared on my Safari. So there's all these little exploitations, you know, that transpire that make my ability to simply go online and be able to utilize it uh, from being compromised. So I was on the phone for several hours with Apple, and I got this one um, tech that uh, started utilizing the key words like conspiracy theory, and he didn't believe what I was saying. Even though there were two people who logged into my computer and saw it for their own eyes, that's why one of them had to get a higher level tech to find out what was going on. The call, in the middle of the call, I heard this, uh, there was a sound, and then all of a sudden the call was cut off, and that tech although he was logged in from Apple, logged into my computer, you know, uh, showing me what I needed to do to fix it, he disappeared off the call. And then um, while we were still online, we hadn't finished, and he never bothered calling me back. His his, uh, name was D-O-C or Doc. So it's all these exploitations. It's it's, uh, being ridiculed when you can, when you're showing them Okay, look, it. since it's so hard to explain it, I'm going to film it, and I'm going to give you the link so that you can go look at it, and then you're going to still sit there and try to ridicule me? And what, what was really interesting was the guy never resolved the issue. So that's circular arguing, right? He's going to go around in circles pretending like he's not going to believe you. And so that's, a, that's the whole premise of his argument, 
was to sit there and try to say he didn't believe me when all he had to do was what the other two texts did was log in and see it for themselves. But see, they don't want to do that. They want to sit there and ridicule someone because they know that if they look at it and they see the proof, then they have to do something about it. So then I wrote an email to this Megan Horton, who has been a customer, exec, executive customer relations for Apple, and we've been going back and forth because something that she was supposed to fix, that fix back in January still wasn't fixed, and not only myself, but another senior tech had sent her an email saying that something's going on over here because when she goes to her profile and she looks at the history for her 2008 MacBook Pro, all the repair history, there's, no, there's nothing. You click the link and there's no information. So instead of sitting there and being silent about it, I just start typing because it's all about documenting. It's very important that you document. So I've been dealing with that, and it's still really not fixed. You know, their excuse, oh, just go get another box. <laughs> well, what the hell difference is that going to do? If it's compromised, it's compromised. If you're a target of electronic warfare and they're utilizing you for training, and or, you know, target practice, you're going to constantly be hit. Doesn't matter how much encryption you use. So needless to say, that's what they've been doing. Oh, and they started up with the acoustic weapons. I'm sorry, those things out there that you hear in our bunch of crows. So that's really, that's natural unless they're being electrocuted with the electromagnetic pulse. But they are, they started up on the vibroacoustics or the uh, infrasonic, infrasound blasting comes from a spot. It's triangulated in three, at least three locations. And, you know, I already have physical damage. So I don't need to say more about that. The more they do it is I consider it attempted murder. Period. In the first degree. So anyway, I've been dealing with that. So even though I took the time off because I was supposed to go out of town and I was still trying to get well, I ended up, it's, it's about wasting people's time. You know, getting them on the phone, calling them, staying on the phone, and never, and they, the, the whole goal is not to resolve the issue. And that's what I find so sad because, you know, we had Tim Cook sitting out there, the head of Apple, telling, getting on television talking about how he believed in the Constitution and the, uh, the rights of the individual to be secure. Well, then what do you do? Have employees that sit there and think it's fun to ridicule someone? or to sit there and, what, exploit that person's computer so that you can secure your side at the expense of somebody else. See, this is about self-interest here. It's always been about self-interest. But it's not about the target and their self-interest because their interest is to survive the onslaught, the blitzing, the attempted murders, the theft, the vandalism, the torture, the violence. You're in survival mode. That's a given for a target. So you have a self-interest in the sense that you want to make it through the day. You want to hope that you can make it through one day, just one day, without being targeted. And it just these people are so obsessed that they can't even go one day. But everybody else that's involved, everybody else that becomes recruited, everyone else that's field testing a piece of equipment or biotechnology or weapons manufacturing, weaponized piece of technology or training or recruitment, those are all self-interest of other people. 
that have nothing to do with the target other than how they can utilize and exploit that individual so that they can gain something for themselves. And that's what this is all about. Targeting is not about targeting. It's about the self-interest of other people and how they can exploit in order to gain something in return. The target ends up losing their lives, their livelihood, their families, their relationships, their jobs. Their self-interest is to just survive in the most basic manner. But everybody else around them has this narcissistic, egomaniacal about how they can get what they can get out of it. What can they get out of it? How does it benefit them? So it's their self-interest. It's not about the target in, in the sense that, that they really care because they don't care about a targeted individual. They only care about their own self-interest and what, what they can gain from it. But see, my bottom line is once you cross that line and you believe it's okay to sacrifice one human being for the sake of your own self-interest, then you're a lost fucking cause. There ain't no hope for you. So the only people that Target should worry about are the people who are not targeting, who have not bought into the program to keep them from buying in to this type of program. See, they crossed the line. They sold their humanity. They're a lost cause. It's kind of like if you were looking at population control and you wanted to take out the least amongst us, well, then you've got, it, you've got millions of them globally that actively participate in the state and corporate, not to mention academia-sponsored domestic terrorist and domestic terrorism, biological, technological terrorism, cyber and telecommunication terrorism. See, I don't say these words lightly. I look up the, the government's own description, and then I turn the mirror back on them. So when you start looking at this stuff, you begin to realize as a target, at least most of you should, that, it's a, that, that it shows the mentality of the people that, that in this country alone, they're only interested in what they can get out of it, and they don't give a fuck who they sacrifice or how that person sacrificed, so long as in the end they get something out of it. Our interests are to survive. My interest is to make sure people understand about the Constitution and the rule of law and try not to cross that line into criminality like these other people who have no problem invading your privacy, listening into, into your personal, hacking your computer, exploiting your computer or your telecommunications, exploiting you as a human being so that it makes them feel more important. And most of these people, 90%, 90-plus percent of your perpetrators are strangers to you. You have no interest in their lives because they're nothing to you other than someone that you pass on the street and in a civil way, you know, you don't cross the, the lines. But other than that, they're total strangers. Yet these strangers think that they have a vested interest in you as an individual. 
that they have a right to interfere with the natural flow of your life that otherwise would not happen had these people not interfered. And if you were to ask them, would you want someone to do that to you? Every single person would say, not no, hell no, I wouldn't want someone to do that. Then why are you doing it to someone else? And they still, because this person deserves it. Because we're teaching this person a lesson. Who the fuck are any of these goddamn people who are total fucking strangers to you have the unmitigated motherfucking gall to sit there and tell you or judge you? Yet they sit there and they think, so there's a difference, okay? You can think what you want to about someone. You can hate that person, their opinion, you know, whatever. But when you cross the line into direct interference of somebody else's life, then, then, then you, you cross the line. And these are the type of cowards that more than likely somewhere in their own individual lives, you know, the real lives that they have, you know, the, the lives that they have with the people that they interact with, whether it's at home, work, job, whatever. See, targets don't have anything to do with these people. So they're pissed at their spouse, they're pissed at their partner, they're pissed at their parent, they're pissed at their kid, whatever. And they don't have the courage to say it, so they turn around and come over to their little group thing, and then they target and torture someone that has no, no connection to their real human living lives. And they don't, and then they sit there and they have the gall to think that they have a right to so-called analyze who they think a target is when they can't even deal with their own shit in their own lives. So that's why I have no respect for these people. People who don't have the courage to live their own lives and are thinking that by getting being a part of a group that can inter, directly interfere with somebody else's living life and yet that person, that target, has no connection to those people other than what they have believed in their own deluded minds. I don't live in a world of delusion. That's why I document things, to show what's happening. (laughs) So self-interest. You think, most of these people think they have inside information, so therefore, they're going to get, they're going to step up that ladder. You know that hermetically sealed glass ceiling, the hermetically sealed triangle, uh, top of the triangle. They don't ever let anyone through. And honestly, I'll, I guarantee that there are more targets who they'd open the door at the top of that, that hermetically sealed glass ceiling than any of the perpetrators out there. Do you think that they would trust these people when they sold out humanity? Not that the people at the top haven't sold it out because they make it look like it's a game. But every day, I have to live with the consequences of other people's decisions that directly affected my human living life. And I will never forgive that. Never. This thing goes to court, and these people sit on death row for the first-degree murder of innocent targeted individuals who did nothing other than speak up and speak out against this inhumane targeting. 
from non-consensual human experimentation in cognitive neuroscience and neurotechnologies to directed energy, anti-personnel, less lethal weaponry, to the psychological operations through cultural hegemony and social engineering, to engineer societies to, to manipulate them so that they can use them as sleeper cells to target anyone who goes on the list. Fuck that shit. So, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about your snitch community and the scandal that's happened, apparently, in Orange County. So, this is from The Intercept by Coral Courier, May 11, 2016. The secret NSA... Uh, oh, sorry, that's the wrong one. I read that one already. So, you can go back to the other recording. Let me get to this one. It's by um, Jordan Smith, theintercept.com. Anatomy of a Snitch Scandal. How Orange County Prosecutors Covered Up Rampant Misuse of Jailhouse Informants. Prosecutorial misconduct and the misuse of jailhouse informants are persistent problems in the criminal justice system. According to the National Registry of Exoneration, since 1989, there have been 923 exonerations tied to official misconduct by prosecutors, police, and other government officials, 89 of them in cases involving the use of jailhouse snitches. Over the last two years, a scandal involving both, involving both has engulfed Orange County, California, exposing systematic violations of defendants' constitutional rights and calling into question the legality of the prosecution of a number of violent felony cases. What makes the Orange County situation particularly troubling is its eerie similarity to another such scandal that unfolded just miles to the north in Los Angeles County starting in the late 1970s and culminated in an exhaustive grand jury report that detailed widespread misuse and abuse of criminal informants and revealed questionable prosecutorial tactics, potentially in more than 200 cases. Alexandra Natapoff, N-A-T-A-P-O-F-F, a law professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles and the nation's leading expert on the use of snitches, said the fact that Orange County officials engaged in unconstitutional behavior similar to what made headlines years earlier in Los Angeles County reveals the entrenched, quote-unquote, nature of the practice of using snitches in questionable ways. We see it from the outside as a scandal that should not be repeated, but apparently Orange County officials did not, didn't see it that way, she said. They saw it as business as usual. The case of Luis Francisco Vega illustrates just how routine the corruption became in Orange County and how devastating its consequences can be. On a February evening in 2009, three teenage friends were hanging out next to a parked car on a residential street in Santa Ana, California, when an SUV pulled up next to them. A group of Latino men sat inside the SUV. One of them, sitting just behind the driver, got out of the vehicle and approached the three friends. Where are you from, he asked, a coded inquiry into their gang affiliations. Nowhere, quote-unquote, one of the teenagers replied. According to an account he later gave police, the man then raised his right arm, pointed a gun at the teenagers, and fired. At least five shots rang out. 
One of the friends bolted and was hit in the forearm. A second, sitting inside the parked car, was hit multiple times, including in the torso and thigh. A third escaped injury. All three survived. As the SUV pulled away with the shooter inside, the teen said they heard a passenger yell a single word, Delhi, Delhi, the name of a Santa Ana street gang. Speaking to police afterwards, none of the teenagers could identify the gunman. They did not recognize him, nor could they provide a physical description. Yet in an interview with Santa Ana police detective Andy Alvarez of the department's gang homicide unit, two of the shooting victims said they could identify one of the passengers in the SUV. He was a 14-year-old kid named Luis Francisco Vega, former fellow student at nearby Saddleback High School, According to the teens, Vega had jumped one of them and beat him up a couple of months prior to the shooting. Notably, Alvarez was told during the attack, Vega had shouted the word Delhi. There were plenty of reasons for police to be skeptical. For starters, the victim had a hostile relationship with Vega, giving them a motive to implicate him. Plus, the notion that both teens could have recognized a person seated on the far side of a car in a matter of seconds while being shot at seemed far-fetched. Neither could describe their attacker, who stood just feet away, nor could they agree on the kind of gun he used or even the make or color of the SUV. Indeed, while each, each said Vega was seated on the right side of the car, one witness put him in front of the passenger seat while the other said he was in the rear of the vehicle. Then... There was the fact that the Santa Ana Police Department, which took pains to document the actions and affiliations of local gang members, possessed no record linking Vega to any gang, let alone Delhi. Alvarez couldn't prove that Vega was even in Santa Ana at the time of the shooting. Vega's lawyer argued that he was more than 120 miles from the scene in Riverside County, where he had been living with an aunt since mid-January. Still, that Delhi was allegedly yelled in the earlier incident was apparently too coincidental for Alvarez. The detective went out to Riverside County to question Vega in early March 2009. In the course of a 40-minute interview, the 14-year-old insisted he was not a gang member and had nothing to do with the shooting. But it didn't matter. Even if Vega was not the shooter, he was still good for an attempted murder charge, which could send him to prison for life. Vega was arrested, brought back to Orange County, and locked up on $1 million bond. In the meantime, the cops kept looking for the shooter. Two weeks after Vega's interview, while the teenager sat in jail, Alvarez's supervisor, Corporal David Rondu, R-O-N-D-O-U, sat down with an old, older youth, 17-year-old Alvaro Sanchez. Sanchez said he'd been kicking it with members of the Delhi gang for a couple of months and admitted that he'd been present on the night of the shooting. That night, he said he was sitting in the back of the SUV, a stolen Jeep Liberty, when the crew came upon the three teens. Sanchez said he got out of the car because he thought the crew were going to fight, but he claimed he wasn't the shooter and refused to provide the names of his companions that night. Sanchez was also charged with attempted murder. Despite the relatively weak evidence against Vega, following a preliminary hearing in October 2009, an Orange County judge gave the state the go-ahead to try him for attempted murder. Less than two weeks later, a jailhouse informant named Juan Calderon came forward with important information. 
Sanchez had admitted to him that he was guilty of the shooting. Calderon told Santa Ana police and the prosecutors with the Orange County District Attorney's office, and Vega had nothing to do with the um, office, and Vega had nothing to do with the crime. Calderon's claim, if confirmed, would exonerate Vega and thus were required by law to be turned over to his defense attorney. But the prosecutors assigned to Vega's case, Deputy District Attorney Stephen Schreiber, S-C-H-R-I-B-E-R, declined to do so. Calderon was an informant in a separate case, and the case the district attorney's office was handling and prosecutors on that case did not want to tip his hand as to Calderon's activities because to do so might put the inmate at risk for retaliation. Shriver said he didn't want to release the information unless Calderon was placed in protective custody, but admitted he failed to take any steps to make sure that occurred. It wasn't until December 2010, nearly two years after Luis Vega was arrested, that Shriver finally dismissed the charges against him. Orange County prosecutors never took Alvaro Sanchez to trial, instead pleading him out for 16 years on the attempted murder charge. Nor was it acknowledged that the state had held on to the information provided by Calderon for months, knowingly keeping an innocent kid locked up and separated from his school, family, and friends. Vegas case might be just another example of the dysfunctions that plagues the nation's prisons and jails, but there is a but there is growing evidence to show that he was one of many criminal defendants affected by prosecutors' malfeasance. Part of a much bigger unfolding scandal pointing to systematic misconduct inside Orange County involving not just the district attorney's office, but also the Orange County Sheriff's Department and various local police departments. To date, more than a dozen felony cases involving murder or violent attack have unraveled as a result of the scandal, which with charges dismissed or reduced or new trials granted. Prosecutors routinely fail to disclose evidence favorable to defendants, so-called brandy material named for the landmark United States Supreme Court case, oh, I'm sorry, Brady, Brady versus Maryland, including thousands of pages of notes related to various jailhouse informants. There is also evidence that the OC or Orange County SD, is that, which runs the county jails, employed jailhouse snitches and illegal schemes to compel other detainees to confess to their crimes. In Vegas' case, for example, not only did the government delay disclosing the information from Calderon, but it, was, but it also was holding information from a different jailhouse snitch, Oscar Morial, which it never disclosed to Vegas' attorney. Specifically, Morial had documented a detailed conversation with Alvaro Sanchez wherein the Delhi gang members explained how the Santa Ana shooting went down and confessed that he was one of two shooters. Sanchez expressed bewilderment that Vega had been charged in connection with the crime, according to notes taken by Morial, saying, it's kind of fucked up because this guy, Luis Vega, gets popped for this case while the three other people who were actually there were still out there. If this fact didn't seemed to trouble the DA's office or the district attorney's office, it was devastating for Vega and his family. Vega's mother, Maria Ruiz, said that what happened to her son has been emotionally shattering and broke, quote-unquote, their family. It has been really hard on him. I am still at the point trying to get him to speak about it. 
she wrote in an email to The Intercept last fall. It was really hard on our family. I never knew how corrupted Orange County was until now, she added. Orange County law enforcement ruined my child's life. The details of Vegas' case would never have come to light if it weren't for a public defender named Scott Sanders. At the end of 2011, Sanders was at work on two high-profile death penalty cases. One was against Daniel Wozniak, accused of killing two people and dismembering one of them. The second was against Scott Carey, D-K-R-A-I-A-A-I, responsible for Orange County's worst-ever mass shooting. As Sanders prepared for Dick Grey's trial, he sought access to files held by prosecutors, including records on a jailhouse informant named Fernando Perez, to whom Dick Grey had apparently confessed details about his crime. As it turned out, Perez had also collected a confession from Sanders' other client, Wozniak. It was an interesting coincidence, Sanders thought, that both of his clients had divulged incriminating information to the same man. Prosecutors fought Sanders' request for the Perez records, but eventually Judge Thomas Goethal, G-O-E-T-H-A-L-S, ordered the state to produce them. Upon receiving the file, Sanders and his team were stunned to receive a trove of information, approximately 5,000 pages of discovery material connected to nine cases in which Perez worked as a snitch for the government. As Sanders poured over the documents, he discovered that Perez had been used as an informant in a number of prominent gang-related cases. The same was true for another inmate whose name appeared in the records, the prolific Oscar Moriel. Both men were also members of the Mexican Mafia gang. Most damning were notes from Moriel to his government handlers that suggested Orange County Sheriff's deputies had worked with the jail to orchestrate contact between Moriel and other detainees for the purpose of producing inculpation Inculpating, inculpating statements. I have to look that one up. The arrangements, if true, would run afoul of a decades-old Supreme Court ruling, Messiah versus the United States, which prohibits government agents, including informants, from questioning or coercing statements from defendants who have already been charged and are represented by counsel. As Sanders looked more closely at the records, he began to wonder, had law enforcement agents used the same tactics to get Decry and Wozniak talking? Sanders also noticed that the amount of material prosecutors disclosed to defense attorneys varied widely from case to case. In one case involving Perez, just four pages of records related to the snitch had been turned over. In another, some 200 pages had been released. The same was true for cases, cases involving Moriel. That was a stunner for me, Sanders told The Intercept. The situation strongly suggested that some Orange County prosecutors had deliberately withheld critical information from defense attorneys that could have potentially helped their clients, either by calling into question the tactics that led to confessions or by suggesting that the two informants, each facing serious charges of his own, were working as snitches for personal benefits. That, in turn, would undermine their credibility along with the information they claimed to have obtained or as in the case of Luis Vega, the withheld information could demonstrate that the defendant was innocent. No one argued that Sanders' client, that cry, was innocent. However, in October 2011, in the midst of a custody battle with his ex-wife, DeCry walked into the salon where she worked in Seal Beach, California, and opened fire. 
hitting eight people, seven of whom died. The cry then killed an eighth person sitting in a parked car outside the salon. He was quickly captured and arrested. Two days later, Tony Rakakas, R-A-C-K-A-U-C-K-A-S, the elected Orange County District Attorney announced that his office would seek the death penalty. Exactly what the cry said to Perez has not been made public, but according to court testimony and more than 100 hours of recordings that prosecutors and sheriff deputies made of the two men talking between their cells, Perez probed for details of Decry's crime. He questioned Decry's state of mind and even asked about what he told his lawyer about his case. Decry had actually confessed his crime to police just hours after his arrest, though he initially pleaded not guilty in court. Why local officials, including prosecutors, would feel the need to employ a snitch in what would almost certainly be a slam-dunk death case in conservative law and order Orange County is particularly confounding. To Sanders, it points directly to a win-at-all-cost mentality, quote-unquote, that has pervaded the Orange County District Attorney's Office. In January 2014, after nearly a year spent scrutinizing records and transcripts related to a number of Orange County prosecutions, Sanders filed a whopping 505-page motion arguing that the death penalty should be taken off the table in Decry's case. In separate motions, he went further, arguing that his client's statement, statements were obtained in violation of law and should be suppressed, and that the government's conduct was so corrupt that the OCDA, Orange County District Attorney, should be recused from prosecuting the case. In 2015, Sanders filed a similar 754-page motion in the Wozniak case. The right to a fair trial is only meaningful when those who prosecute and investigate crimes are committed to both honoring defendants' constitutional rights and disclosing evidence that is favorable and material as mandated by state and federal law, quote-unquote, Sanders wrote in the decry motion. The court-ordered discovery reveals investigative and discovery practices by the decry prosecution team that are rooted in deception and concealment and unchecked and, and, unchecked and lawless dot, 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 informant program overseen by the Orange County District Attorney and a string of prosecutions which confirm a culture that confuses winning with justice. Prosecutions marked by repeated and stunning Brady violations subordinated perjury, and a myriad of other misconduct. Over the objections of prosecutor, Judge Goethal, G-O-E-T-H-A-L, ordered a hearing. He was anxious, quote-unquote, to hear the evidence and determine where the truth lies, quote-unquote, he said. To say that the O.C. or Orange County District Attorney's Office was displeased would be an understatement. Veteran reporter R. Scott Moxley, who, ha who has covered criminal justice for the OC Weekly for two decades, had doggedly pursued the unfolding snitch scandal. He described standing next to a prosecutor when the bombshell decry motions arrived in the district attorney's office. He was livid, Moxley recalled. The prosecutors, if summarized it, you know, their posi posi position was up front. This is all bullshit. <coughs> The unprecedented hearing, which explored allegations of prosecutorial misconduct to a degree rarely seen, began in March 2014 and stretched into the summer. As we proceed, two things were happening in a general view, Moxley said. One was that Sanders was scoring points in court. The testimony and evidence was consistently backed up, uh, con were consistently backing up 
his accusations, and the attitude among the prosecutors started to shift. At first, they were really angry, Moxie said, and then they were like, well, okay, some of the allegations are right, but our intentions, he continued with mock indignation, he's impugning our intentions, and our intentions are noble. It's all accidental errors. Over the course of the hearing, Sanders called to testify some 28 prosecutors and law enforcement officers, along with snitches like Perez and Moriel. Much of the testimony was simply incredible. Prosecutors called to the stand consistently shifted their stories and minimized their infraction. Sure, they, there may have been instances of failure to turn over evidence to the defense, they argued, but that's because they were carrying a heavy caseload or because they didn't fully understand the requirements of the law they're bound to uphold, namely Brady and Messiah. Among the most basic laws governing due process for criminal defendants, at least one prosecutor repeatedly insisted he simply couldn't recall why he'd failed to turn over Brady materials. In another term, prosecutors and at least one sheriff's deputy attempted to shift blame to the feds, in particular a former assistant United States attorney and current Orange County judge who they claimed had forced them to withhold Brady evidence related to informants who were also being used in federal cases. But when the former federal attorney, Terry Flynn Peister, P-E-I-S-T-E-R, took the stand that summer, she roundly refuted the accusations. Eric Peterson, a veteran Gang prosecutor also testified that in one case, he'd actually been given an order, quote-unquote, not to turn over discovery. When asked who gave the order, Peterson responded, I don't know. At times, prosecutors' own files valued their, their insistence that they did not independently withhold important evidence. One memo extracted by Sanders showed an Orange County District Attorney investigator telling Peterson that information provided by Fernando Perez would likely greatly enhance the prosecution of DeCry. The investigators requested that Peterson not reveal Perez's name, noting that nothing about the snitch or his work had been revealed to Sanders. With such shifty behavior exposed in court, the prosecutor's testimony came across as hardly more believable than that of the informants Perez and Moriel. Although the two men both faced charges that could send them to prison for life, the pair professed to be working as informants, not as any personal, uh, not for any personal benefit, like a potential sentence reduction, but simply because it was the right thing to do. Yeah. On the stand, Perez recalled sitting in a jail cell and thinking about his life. I dot 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 just felt I was done, done with the gang life. He recalled. So he reached out to dep deputies with the o uh, OCSD Special Handling Unit in charge of the county's jailhouse informant. Since the day in 2010, Perez said he's only told the truth about everything he's done and heard as an informant. You know, I'm a changed man, he explained. I changed my life around and I did the right things. But under intense questioning over three days, Perez's story unraveled. Although he portrayed himself on the stand as having begun his work with the government in 2010, he ultimately concealed that, yes, he acted as an informant prior to his supposed epiphany, and he'd also previously floated the story about being a changed man. 
DeCry's attorney noted a previous sentence reduction Perez had received as a result of his informant work, a detail Perez claimed not to remember. Still notes he wrote to his law enforcement handlers after starting his latest stint as an informant were titled Operation Daylight, apparently a reference to his hope that his snitch work would result in his freedom. Other elements of Perez's work, quote-unquote, proved even more troubling. Although his Although he testified that he never cozied up to inmates or tried to get them to open up about their cases, conduct Messiah forbids, a recorded interview revealed Perez specifically telling prosecutors about DeCry's question in an attempt to get him talking. In correspondence with Orange County law enforcement, Perez mentioned working on his assignment and expressed how much he loved this Little job I got. Another note opened with the line, my mission is complete. Perez also wrote to deputies suggesting they move an inmate closer to his cell, apparently to gain a better opportunity to speak with him. Morial, too, engaged in such strategizing. In at least one note to deputies, he invoked a plan to transfer a specific inmate close to him, the plan which Morial referred to as the dis, dis, oh, dis, diso. I guess like info or whatever, scam was simple. Provide a snitch a particular housing classification, in this instance, a disciplinary isolation placement to bolster his credibility with other inmates. Because inmates assumed snitches would be not be placed in disciplinary housing, the move would help to mask his identity as an informant. Then, house the targeted inmate in the same block within chatting distance of the snitch. Proof of such maneuvers lent credence to allegations Sanders made about his client's cases. That Perez had extracted confessions from both Wozniak and DeCry indicated that he had been housed near them deliberately, he said. The state denied this charge. Taken together, the months of testimony painted a shocking picture of collusion between Orange County law enforcement officers and the informants they employed to violate the constitutional rights of jail inmates awaiting trial, in particular the right to have an attorney present for questioning by the government or its agents. In August 2014, Judge Gothal made his ruling. He found that while there had clearly been some inexcusable discovery problems and questionable witness testimonies, there was not enough evidence to suggest that DeCry's case had been tainted by systematic corruption. As a sanction for the violations, he did go at ban Orange County prosecutors from using any of DeCry's incriminating snitch collected government statements, a collected statement at trial. Sanders was tremendously appreciated, quote-unquote, that Goethal stent so much time on the hearing, he told The Intercept, but disappointed that the ruling was limited to suppressing the statements. Judge Goethal had his reasons, and how could we not be respectful for his reasons? Nevertheless, Sanders kept probing for additional discovery. That September, he uncovered evidence that the Orange County Sheriff's Department, going back more than 20 years, had been documenting and concealing its justification for moving jail inmates. In DeCry's case, the documents known as TRED records suggest that Perez's placement next to DeCry was intentional. The existence of the records also revealed that at least two witnesses lied at the 2014 hearing, Sheriff's Deputy Seth Tunstall and Ben Garcia, both with the Special Handling Unit on the, on the stand. Tunstall claimed it was not his responsibility to cultivate or manage informants, 
Both deputies profess to know hardly anything about inmates being moved to facilitate conversations. Aside from a few isolated cases, and both denied the existence of records that might confirm Sanders' allegations. The TRED records revelations persuaded Goethal to open the hearing. This time, Tunstall and Garcia had little choice but to change their tune. Tunstall tried claiming he'd simply forgotten about the TRED records during his previous testimony, despite estimating that he'd penned tens of thousands of them over his time with the department. Later, he testified what TRED records are considered confidential, but that he would have answered had he been asked specifically about them. For his part, Garcia testified that he had reviewed TRED records prior to taking the stand in 2014. They helped determine who moved who and why, but echoing Tunstall said he failed to mention the records because that's the way we were trained, quote, unquote. At the close of the hearing, Goethal was so disturbed by the new evidence that he concluded that the entire Orange County District Attorney should be recused from prosecuting decry pending death penalty case. On March 12, 2015, he amended his previous ruling, this time agreeing that there were serious ongoing discovery violations in the case. The judge called out Turnstall and Garcia by name for having either intentionally lied or willfully withheld information, as well as Peterson, the veteran gang prosecutor whom he did not believe. He also faulted District Attorney Tony Rakakas for failing to ensure that defendants' constitutional rights were upheld, upheld not only by prosecutors, but also by the law enforcement personnel with whom they work in tandem. Certain aspects of the district attorney's performance in this case might be described as a comedy of errors, but for the fact that it has been so sadly deficient, Gothal wrote, there is nothing funny about that. With the Orange County District Attorney, or OCDA, off the decry trial, Gothals sent the case to the Office of California Attorney General Kamala Harris for prosecution. Harris quickly appealed, arguing that the OCDA was unaware of TRED system existed and couldn't be blamed for problems inside the sheriff's office. Wow, that's the that's our Kamala Harris, huh? Mm-mm-mm. But see, you have to understand, Kamala Harris had someone on her staff who was arrested down in Southern California because they were the Knights of Malta or something. It's all documented. And they were they had actual, like, realistic-looking sheriff's buttons and things like that, and they were a part of this cult, you know, that was going to, that were the real law enforcement of the world. So, you know, I don't know how her, you know, I mean, excuse me, what are you doing with someone that's working in your office that's down in Southern California and got arrested because they're posing as so-called police and law enforcement? Because they're the real police is what they consider themselves in their delusional cult? Um, Harris' office maintained that there was no reason to believe the OCDA couldn't competently handle the case. This claim was particularly notable considering that Theodore Cropley, uh, the deputy attorney general who wrote the appeal, was present in Goeth's courtroom throughout almost all of the months-long decry hearing, sitting behind OCDA prosecutors and was certainly aware of the troubling evidence of misconduct in that office. Yet none of that 
information was included in the appeal. Since Gothal's ruling, Rakakas and his prosecutors have remained defiant. Instead of expressing dismay that ethical and legal lapses may have violated the due process right of countless defendants, those who have spoken publicly have mainly attacked Sanders, both personally and professionally. One prosecutor called him an imbecile, quote-unquote. Another said his legal thinking was daft. A third, Mark Geller, told the Orange County Register that Sanders shouldn't even be a lawyer based on the tactics he's engaged. So remember, he's the truth teller. He's trying to expose that, you know, maybe these people are bad, and they are, they, you know, more than likely some of them have done some horrible things. But in this country, we have a right to legal defense. You're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. It's not about withholding information so that you can look good on your prosecutorial record. But we have targets who've gone through all of this type of stuff where these district attorneys knew that the target was innocent. And had the target not sat there and said, this goes to trial because I'm innocent and these snitch perps are setting me up, these guys would get away with it. They're, they're, they're called careerists. You know, they want to make a name for themselves. They like the wins. Remember, like they said in the beginning of the article, the win is more important than anything else, than justice. That's bullshit. I deal as a target. All of us targets deal with people who want to win. That's all they care about. We're going to win this argument. We're going to win that argument. But it has nothing to do with true justice or the truth in particular. So, yeah, these people may be, you know, of shady character. But you know what? I'm dealing with neighborhood people who go to church on Sunday, who are pillars of communities, and they're as crooked as shit. So it's a character and credibility assassination. Remember, when you're a truth teller, the first thing they do is go after your character. You're a mental case. There's something wrong with you. You're daft. You're stupid. Blah, blah, blah. So that you get the other people to believe it. Prosecutors have also sought to undermine Goethals, who was once a prosecutor in the Orange County District Attorney as well as a defense attorney. As the Los Angeles Times reported, since the start of the decry hearings in early 2014, Orange County prosecutors have repeatedly sought to remove their cases from Goethals' court. Between February 2014 and March 2015, they sought to disqualify Gothals 57 times based on alleged prejudice. A marked contrast to previous years, prosecutors sought disqualification only twice in 2013 and not at all in 2012. So it's retaliation. So remember that. It's also retaliation for telling the truth. So this judge says, something's really bad. This, you can't do this. So for speaking out, Sanders is called an imbecile, you know, going after his character and credibility. And then they go after the judge, not because he did something wrong, but because he stood for justice and the Constitution. So then you got all these careerists, you know, these perpetrator DAs and shit like that, because we got tons of perps all the way up at the top. State-sponsored terrorists. 
because they have infiltrated every segment of society in every type of position you can think of. They're sleeper cells. So in March, the scandal even took a violent turn when a local defense attorney who recently succeeded in overturning a client's conviction based on misconduct was beaten up in the courthouse by an Orange County District Attorney investigator. The two had exchanged a short but heated set of accusations about who was more sleazy, quote-unquote, defense lawyers who exposed law enforcement cheating or the county's official respo- uh, officials responsible for it. Amid the petty snipping, and blows to the defense attorney's face fallout from the hearing continues, even as officials insist that all is right in the House of Rakakas. At least 15 senior felony cases have so far been diff- uh, directly affected. According to Sanders, part of the problem is that the cops have gone quiet. In one case, Turnstall and Garcia, the deputies called out for lying in the Decry case, refused to testify, invoking their Fifth Amendment right, and thus avoiding cross-examination by defense attorneys. And yet, more than a year after the deceptive testimony was exposed, neither the Attorney General nor the OCDA has filed criminal charges against either deputy or anyone else connected to the snitch scandal. To date, only Peterson, the prosecutor, goeth, singled out, for lacking integrity, has resigned his position. The refusal to hold anyone accountable for the corruption is not just a matter of D.A. Rakakas's nonchalance. Other officials implicated in the scandal have displayed a similar attitude. Sheriff Sandra Hutchins publicly shrugged off the allegations in an extensive interview with a local TV news anchor posted on YouTube in October 2015 regarding the TRED system. She said the DA's office had known about those records for years and the system was not meant to be secret. The deputies who said they were just mistaken or unclear about what they could reveal, she added that judges have said the TRD record itself should be private, but not necessarily the information it contains. In other words, it's all just a big misunderstanding. You know, there's this whole talk of a conspiracy that this is secret information. It's totally false, she said. So here's that word conspiracy, right? Oh, then you got to put in the word, I'm surprised she didn't say conspiracy theory, because there really was, there really is a Title 18 felony conspiracy going on in Orange County. What does that mean? That means that they, these people collude with each other. One or more, two or more people conspire. It's a felony. It's not a conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat, fucking bullshit. This is a flat-out conspiracy. It's a felony. But then what they do is they use these talking points, right, to, to diminish what's, what, the importance of it to denigrate, to, def- you know, to diffuse it. And the best way they do that is to go after the character and credibility, the careers of the truth teller. So it goes on. I, I, it's pretty much almost done, but it says, uh, <clears throat> it says, while denying every allegation level that her department, Hutchins, also admitted that she hasn't conducted any actual investigations into the matter or addressed the potential perjury of Tunstall and Garcia. She has portrayed herself as being hamstrung while awaiting any comprehensive outside inquiry that might occur. 
I can't do administrative investigations until that is done. I can't even get a statement from my deputy. She lamented. If they did something wrong, I'll deal with that. But we don't know that to this day. At the Christ hearing, Dan Wagner, who oversees the Orange County District Attorney's Homicide Division, said that he and other attorneys looked into the allegations made against the office, an inquiry that was not officially documented and found nothing amiss. Well, you know, that's kind of like the tobacco industry doing an investigation on whether tobacco is bad for you, and they come up with, no, it's fine. Do you understand that concept? You have someone from the inside doing an investigation on the inside. That, that, the perfect example would be the tobacco industry. And then they do an investigation on themselves, and then they tell the general public that nothing's amiss, that you can keep smoking. So I think when I, I might be explaining in this, and it's hard to grasp the concept. So I'll give you that concept, and it's much easier to grasp the reality. So in an email to The Intercept, a California Attorney General spokesperson said the office was conducting an independent investigation, but only specifically regarding the, the cry case. Uh, and OCSD spokesperson said the department's internal inquiry would proceed once the state investigation was completed. Oh, Erwin Shermaninsky, Shermaninsky. I heard him speak. In November 2015, almost two years after Sanders first... Okay, I'm sorry. This is a different case, right? Or is this the same article? Let me see. Yeah. Um, after Sanders first stumbled upon the evidence that exposed the informant scandal, more than 30 individuals and interested groups joined Erin Shermaninsky, dean of law school at the University of California, Irvine, and former California Attorney General John Vandekamp in signing a letter requesting a Department of Justice investigation. The unwillingness of the OCSD and OCDA to acknowledge the due process implications of the alleged misconduct has become only more entrenched as attention to the situation has grown, they wrote. It is our firm belief that the Department of Justice is the only entity equipped to conduct this investigation and restore public confidence in the criminal justice system in Orange County. The Department of Justice has not revealed whether it will undertake any investigation. The department did not respond to the intercept's request for comment. But in familiar fashion, rather than consider Shermaninsky's concerns, Rakaka's office lashed out at the respected legal scholar. In a press release, OCDA parsed portions of the Law Review article Shermaninsky co-authored in 1996 in the wake of the O.J. Simpson trial on the subject of legal commentators' ethical responsibilities. The OCDA essentially took the position that since he had not been present during the entirety of the decries hearing and hadn't ordered a full set of transcripts, Chermaninsky should not be speaking out. The DA said the concern expressed in the letters were based on factually incorrect media accounts of circumstances of the case. So here's another. He's a law professor. He's respected. And then what do they do? They turn around and go after his character and his credibility. Nobody knows that better than targets. We already outlined what this whole process is of anyone who has the nerve to speak out and speak truth to this absolute corrupted power. It is pure and concentration of corruption at the highest levels. Trickles all the way down to the boots on the ground. 
<clears throat> Shermaninsky wrote to The Intercept last year about the implications of the snitch scandal, recently decline, declined further comment, noting that he is now representing Orange County Superior Court System, which is fighting the OCDA, or the Orange County District Attorney, over its retaliatory actions against Goethals. So what do they do? They retaliate. I'm telling you, what did I say? They, 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 they recruit these people into this fold that will, are willing to strike out without question, without reservation, without remorse, without regard to the human life and or humanity of the person that they're targeting. It's all documented on my website. When I published it, they retaliate. So he's representing the judge who's been retaliated against for telling these guys, you're a bunch of corrupted motherfuckers. And Rakakis hoped his informant committee would clear the DA's office. Its investigation did did no such thing. The committee completed its report in December, noting that where the use of informants is concerned, confidence in the criminal justice system in Orange County has eroded, quote-unquote. The report criticized the win-at-all-cost mentality, quote-unquote, among some per- prosecutors describing the office as a ship without a rudder. Among the recommendations, the OCDA should revise its policies for using informants and ensure better supervision of related cases, provided more robust training for prosecutors, and establish a conviction integrity unit to review post-conviction innocence claims. But the committee also emphasized that its review was incomplete. Lacking subpoena power, it had access only to whatever material officials voluntarily turned over, and it could not force anyone to talk. The review should be considered an evaluation and not an investigation. The committee wrote and concluded that an outside entity with document subpoena power and the ability to compel witnesses to be questioned under oath should conduct a full inquiry. In short, the committee had come to nearly the same conclusion that Shermaninsky, whose opinion the DA had flatly dismissed. In the wake of the report, Rakakas, R-A-C-K-A-U-C-K-A-S, finally submitted his own investigation request to the Department of Justice, although his appearance at a press conference around the same time suggested that he remained unconvinced it is actually needed. We know there is no evidence whatsoever of any of the sensational wrongdoing that's been alleged, Rakakas said bluntly. There's been, no, there's been some mistakes made, particularly with meeting evidence discovery obligations, but there were no innocent people convicted as a result of no injustice, he added. We know that doesn't exist. How exactly Rakakis can be so sure is a mystery. With a scandal of such proportions, it's impossible to draw conclusions about possible miscarriage of justice absent at concerted efforts to identify and review every case that they may have tainted by violations of due process. Orange County is littered with victims of the scandal. From the grieving family of decries victims who have yet to see justice of any kind to Luis Vega, now 22, who was locked up at 14 for a crime he he most certainly did not commit. I might be one thing, it, it might be one thing if the law enforcement officials involved had never navigated a scandal of such scope, but Rakakas and Sheriff Hutchins 
should be more familiar with the process than most. Both were working in the criminal justice system in Southern California when the last big snitch controversy in the Los Angeles County erupted in the state. Rakakas had joined the OCDA and Hutchins was working in the L.A. County Jail System, ground zero for the scandal. According to Sheriff's Department spokesperson, Hutchins was a junior jailer at the time and didn't work at the men's jail where the scandal unfolded, unfolded the OCDA. Our criminal justice system is much better at looking forward than backwards. The, the corruption in L.A. County was uncovered after a career criminal named Leslie White explained to the press and local sheriff's department how he cooked up detailed false confessions that he then peddled to jailers to have come from fellow inmates. The ensuing grand jury investigation involved testimony from more than 100 witnesses and thousands of documents. In its report, the 1989 to 1990 grand jury concluded in part that a number of informants had committed perjury. The DA's office had deliberately failed to curtail misuse of informants, and the sheriff's office had violated defendants' rights. The report estimated that over a 10-year period, as many as 250 cases involving informants were affected. The grand jury report noted that convicted defendants could raise wrongful convictions claims based on the county's use of jailhouse informants, but it is not clear how many claims were ever raised of those on those grounds. Today, the number of cases that many have been tainted by Orange County that may have been tainted by Orange County scandal is similarly unclear. Whether such a figure will ever be known or whether affected defendants will have a meaningful chance to challenge their convictions will depend on a thorough and independent investigation. Responding to questions about the scandal, the and OCDA spokesperson declined to provide any answers, stating that the intercept was requesting an exorbitant amount of information, quote unquote, that would require a lot of time and resources to address. Your questions show a slanted bias and our participation appears to be solely severe as a filler. Um, we don't believe you're interested in being fair, the response reads. We respectfully decline to participate in your article. Indeed, the OCPA has consistently argued that the media have overblown resolvable discovery problems and that the systematic issue resides in the sheriff's department. Still, it doesn't appear the scandal will recede into the background anytime soon. In a court hearing last, in a court hearing last week related to Sanders, other capital client, Daniel Wozniak, sheriff's department officials testified that they found yet another trove of documents computer notes related to jailhouse informants that were taken by Ben Garcia and other deputies that has never been turned over to the defense or apparently to prosecutors. According to the Orange County Register, officials testified that the OCSD administration had no idea deputies were keeping the notes, which span at least five, a five-year period beginning in 2008. Some, uh, so basically what it's saying, let me just get to the end of this one. For, so it says, indeed, as uh, what is abundantly clear about the situation in Orange County is that if it weren't for a handful of people, chiefly public defender Sanders, Judge Goethals, and reporter Moxley, the snitch scandal probably would not have made news outside the courthouse in Santa Ana. Indeed, as the scandal began to unfold, Moxley recalls being pulled aside in the courthouse by a veteran Orange County prosecutor who suggested that he back off the story. He goes, you know, if you turn away from this, this goes away, Moxley said. And he wasn't saying that as a compliment. He was saying, you're inflating this. If you leave it, then it's just Sanders barking in a courtroom. 
And it stunned me because it was early on. And I thought, wow, this is how they're viewing it. For Maria Ruiz, the mother of Luis Vega, who at 14 was jailed for nearly two years for a crime that county law enforcement knew he did not commit. That sort of flippancy isn't new. Indeed, it wasn't until last year that Ruiz learned police and prosecutors had evidence in hand that her son was actually innocent months before months before the attempted murder charge against him was finally dropped. I was so emotional after finding out, she said. I was crying for a whole month. She always knew her son was innocent, and early on she told the prosecutors just that. I told the DA, look, you have the wrong person, and he just shook his head at me. And they knew it. They know you're innocent, but they still go out on the bandwagon to claim that you're guilty. The snitch community, that's what your perpetrator community is. They're like the snitch community. They're the snitches who become the bitches for the state. So this is like a good encapsulation of what happens. That's why all of, most of those targets know that it, uh, we have to have a congressional hearing. Because if it were the trial-wise, they'll just bring in the, peer, the perpetrators. One of the best examples of showing the perpetrator community was, what was his name? He ran for um, president. It wasn't Kerry. It was, who was the other guy? And then in the courtroom, there were these, these, these um, uh, alternates and stuff, and they all wore the same color shirts, and then the judge had to stop the trial. Well, that's that coalition of the willing mentality. You know, all wear the same colors. So you knew that what, the way the trial was going to go, apparently, was going to be in his favor. Oh, this was, was it Edwards? Hold on. Yeah, so white color coordinate alternate jurors in John Edwards' trial. Flirting, color coordinated jurors make teams. So then they were, like, I think it was a, uh, it was a, it was a, they were wearing different colors, but they were all coordinating with each other. Well, that's what the perpetrator community, that's what the state-sponsored domestic terrorist organization, excuse me, I should stop calling, they are perpetrators, but what they really are, state and corporate-sponsored domestic civilian, the civilian population, the state and corporate-sponsored domestic terrorist. So let me break it down the right way. So you, you can look at this up. This is all source material. John Edwards was on trial, and the judge had to close off the trial a couple of times because all of a sudden these women came in and they were wearing the same colored clothing. Well, that's, that's color synchronization. But in that case, they were going to get him off the hook because they were part of that coalition of the willing for the, the, the state and corporate-sponsored domestic terrorist organization, Nationwide Network, that they'll come together and they'll lie, flat-out lie. They're all part of the same mentality. So if you want to know about careerist, um, career, uh, how do you put it, careerist uh, district attorneys, there was one, uh, Democracy Now! on April 11, 2016. It's called Black Lives Matter versus the LAPD or Los Angeles Police Department. Are the police unfairly targeting and surveilling the movement? So there's something that came up in this one.
So I'm going to read a couple of the pieces of information because I think it's relevant. And I know that targets have gone to court have, have come up against these careerist um, uh, district attorneys. So it's, I'm going to start off where it says, um, well, what it was was that there were only specific people who were targeted. And these people, it was during the, um, the, the, the not the riots, but the, the protests that were going on, you know, for the Black Lives Matter movement. And what had happened was they were going after people who were organizing. And what they did was they sent letters to their place of employment. Okay, so they're, they hit you financially, right? So Amy Goodman says they're not convicted. They, oh, I'm sorry, it goes right here. Um, so Amy Goodman says some of the activists who are on trial had letters sent to their employers. So Nana G-Y-A-M-F-E says, I'm going to just call her Nana. Um, that was a different set of activists, different folks who were arrested. They were not put on trial, but they actually had letters. I started getting calls, and this is from the December 2015 action that occurred on the 405 freeway near the airport. I started getting calls from people that they were getting letters to their employers that were being sent by the DOJ, or Department of Justice, and the LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department. And those letters were going directly to their supervisor saying, hey, this person has been arrested for a crime or felony conspiracy to commit any charge, quote-unquote. Amy, Amy says, um, they're not. Nana says, and so Amy Goodman says, they're not convicted. They are arrested. And these are the letters. And who sent these letters? Nana, G-Y-A-M-F-I, says, these letters, according to the letters themselves, they were either sent by the Department of Justice or LAPD. We are certain that they were sent by the LAPD. The Department of Justice of the state of California, this is not what they are doing. This is an LAPD thing. And they sent. Now, these folks were not even charged. We're talking about they, they're not even having cases against them in court. Just based on their arrest, we had a person who was headed to Canada who was sent back and told, deported at the border. You can't come in here because you have these charges pending against you. When that clearly was not the case. But it's being written up purposefully and intentionally to mar any people who are associated with the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement. So the prosecutor in this case is Jennifer Wexler. Okay, so remember that name because she's L.A.'s, kind of equal to the Orange County, if you catch my drift. <clears throat> so Nana says yes. And she describes herself as a political prosecutor. She is one who prosecuted Occupy Los Angeles members who were arrested. If you look her up, there are voracious blogs talking about the tactics that she engaged in the city attorney uh, in the city attorney engaged in, and that those tactics were used again here with Black Lives Matter. Just as an example, her offers in terms of plea offers, all included jail time and no unlawful protesting, quote-unquote, clause. Now, I pointed out to her in open court and to the judge that I find that to be completely unconstitutional. I don't know what that means. No unlawful protesting? Protesting is a First Amendment right in this country. And she, you know, looked over and said, oh, well, that's what they'd have to plead to. And so, obviously, 
we were not going to plea to that. So, Jennifer, this Wexler, okay, she's the type of person that would, well, we can't say because, you know, that would, that's an assumption, right? So we don't want to do that. But you got to understand that there's, there are crooked district attorneys out there, and every target that's been brought in front of a judge has had a crooked, compromised district attorney, period. So we go from the snitch community, but what I'm trying to say is that th this is how they work it. LAPD or, and or the Department of Justice are sending letters to people who are not even charged, and they were arrested, but they didn't officially charge them with the crime, telling their employers, in, finding their supervisors. So it's not just sending it to your work or human resources. It's beelining your supervisor, telling them that you, you're, you've been charged hoping that you'll get fired from your job. Because, see, one of the tactics, one of the main tactics that are utilized by this domestic terrorist organization is that you put your career in front of your cause. So if they go after your career or they go after you financially, then they hope that you'll give up the fight for the cause. It's all documented. Look up Team Themis. Look up their pamphlet on what they were offering to do, to occupy, to, to people who went against um, the Chamber of Commerce, the Bank of America. These were hit jobs going out on people. And so they believe that if they destroyed your character and your credibility or they destroyed your financing, then you'd be so enmeshed in trying to save your career or finances that you'd give up your fight for justice or for truth. This is a tactical operation, and they're doing it all over the place now. So I put the link in there, and uh, that was Democracy Now! So I wanted to show you how bad it's getting. I mean, it's getting really, really bad out there. It trickles down, you know. If the corruption is at the highest levels, it always trickles down. So you have to think about it in terms of that. And they go after organizers. Remember that. Remember I told you back in 2006 when I was blitzed, I only asked a question once, and it was to the, the um, building manager at the Aspen Place in Hollywood. And I said, why? He said, because you know how to organize. So I already knew what the hit jobs were going to be coming down the pipe. They're looking at people who, they, they, who you haven't done anything wrong, but they feel that you could. And so by destroying your character and your credibility, then they figure, hey, that's one less person. So I'm going to read one more thing, and then I'll open up the lines. Uh, Chris Hedges, May 14, 2016. Welcome to 1984. The artifacts of corporate totalitarianism has been exposed. 
The citizens, disgusted by the lies and manipulation, have turned on the political establishment. But the game is not over. Corporate power has within its arsenal potent forms of control. It will use them. As the pretense of democracy is unmasked, the naked fist of state repression takes its place. America is about, unless we act quickly, to get ugly. Our political system is decaying, said Ralph Nader, when I reached him by phone in Washington, D.C. It's on the way to gangrene. It's reaching a critical mass of citizen revolt. This moment in American history is what Antonio Gramsci, G-R-A-M-S-C-I, called the intergunum, the period when a discredited regime is collapsing, but a new one has yet to take its place. There is no guarantee that what comes next will be better, but this space, which will close soon, offers citizens the final chance to embrace a new vision and a new direction. The, the vision will only be obtained through mass acts of civil mobilization and civil disobedience across the country. Nader, who sees this period in American history as crucial, perhaps the last opportunity to save us from tyranny, is planning to rally the left for three days from May 23rd to May 26th at Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C., in what he is calling Breaking Through Power or Citizens Revolutionary Week. He's bringing to the Capitol scores of activists and community leaders to speak, organize, and attempt to mobilize to halt or slide into despotism. The two parties can implode politically, Nader said. They can be divided by different candidates and super PACs, but this doesn't implode their paymasters. Elections have become off-limits to democracy, he went on. They have become off-limits to democracy's fundamental civil community or civil society. When that happens, the very root shrivels and dries up. Politics is now a slideshow. <laughs> yes. Politics does not bother corporate power. Whoever wins, they win. Both parties represent Wall Street over Main Street. Wall Street is embedded in the federal government. Donald Trump, like Hillary Clinton, has no plans to disrupt the corporate machinery, although Wall Street has rallied around Clinton because of her predictability and long service to the financial and military elites. What Trump has done, Nader points out, is channel the racist right-wing militants within the electorate embodied in large part by the white working poor into the election process, perhaps for one last time. Much of the left, Nader argues, specifically with the Democratic Party's blatant rigging of the primaries to deny Bernie Sanders the nomination, grasps that change will come only by building mass movements. This gives the left, at least until these fascist forces also give up on the political process a window of opportunity. If we do not seize it, he warns, we may be doomed. He despairs over the collapse of the commercial media, now governed by the primacy of corporate profits. Trump's campaign has enormous appeal to the commercial media, mass media, Nader said. He brought huge ratings 
during the debate. He taunted the networks. He said, I'm boycotting this debate. It's going to cost you profits. Has this ever happened before in American history? It shows you the decay, the commercialization of public elections. The impoverished national discourse fostered by a commercial mass media that does not see serious political debate as profitable and focuses on the trivial, the salacious, and the inane has empowered showmen and con artists such as Trump. Trump speaks in a very plain language at the third grade level, according to some linguists, Nader said. He speaks like a father figure. He says, I'll get you jobs. I'll bring back industry. I'll bring back manufacturing. I'll protect you from immigrants. The media never challenges him. He is not asked, how are we going to do all of this? What is step one? Step two, is the White House going to ignore the Congress and the courts? He astonishes his audiences. He amazes them with his bullying, his lying, his insults, like Mark, little Marco, the wall the wall Mexico is going to pay for no more entry in the country by Muslims, a quarter of the human race until we figure it out. The media never catches up with him. He is always on the offensive. He is always news. The commercial media wants the circus. It gives them high ratings and high profits. The focus on info entertainment has left not only left the public uninformed and easily manipulated, but has locked out the voices that advocate genuine reform and change. The commercial media does not have time for citizen groups and citizen leaders who are really trying to make America great. Whether by advancing health, safety, or economic well-being, Nader bemoaned. These groups are overwhelmed. They're marginalized. They're kept from nourishing the contents of national, state, and local elections. Look at the Sunday news show. No one can get on to demonstrate that the majority of the people want full Medicare for all with the free choice of doctors and hospitals, not only more efficient, but more life savings. Saving. There was a major press conference a few days ago at the National Press Club. The leading advocates of full Medicare for all or single payer were there, Dr. Steffi Wool-Handler and Dr. Sidney, Sidney Wolf, the head of Physicians for National Health Program. This is a group with about 15,000 physicians on board. Nobody came. There was a stringer for an indie media outlet and the corporate crime reporter. There are all kinds of major demonstrations, 1,300 arrests outside the Congress protesting the corruption of money in politics. Again, no coverage except a little on NPR and on Democracy Now. The system is gamed, he said. The only way out of it is to mobilize the civil society. We are organizing the greatest gathering of accomplished citizen advocacy groups on the, on the greatest number of redirections and reforms ever brought through in American history under one roof, he said, of this upcoming event. The first day is called Breaking Through Power, how it happens. We have 18 groups who have demonstrated it with tiny budgets for over three decades on issues such as road safety, removing hundreds of hazardous or ineffective pharmaceuticals from the market, changing food habits from junk food to nutrition, and rescuing people from death row who were falsely convicted of homicides. What if we tripled the budget and the staff of these groups? 
18 of these groups have a total budget that is less than one of dozens of CE. One, I'm sorry, 18 of these groups has have a total budget that is less than what one dozen of CEOs make a year. Nader called on Sanders to join in the building of a nationwide civic mobilization. He said that while Clinton may borrow some of his rhetoric, she and the Democratic Party establishment would not incorporate Sanders' populist appeal against Wall Street into the party platform. If Sanders does not join a civic mobilization, Nader warned, there would be a complete disintegration of his movement. Nader also said he was worried that Clinton's high negativity ratings, along with potential scandals, including the possible release of her highly paid speeches to corporations such as Goldman Sachs, could see Trump win the presidency. I have her lecture contract uh, with the Harry Walker Lecture Agency, he said. She had a clause in the contract with these business sponsors, which basically said the door will be closed. There will be no press. You will pay 1000 for a stenographer to give me and for my exclusive use of stenographer records. If what I said, you will pay me $5,000 a minute. She has it all. She can't say we will look into it or we'll see if we can't find it. She has been dissembling, uh, and her latest rant is, I'll release the transcripts that everyone else does. Who is everybody else? As Bernie Sanders rebutted, he doesn't give highly paid speeches. Behind closed doors to Wall Street firms, business executives or business trade groups, Trump doesn't give quarter of a million dollar speeches behind closed doors to business. So by saying I will release all my transcripts if everyone else does, she makes a null and void assertion. This is the characteristic of the Clintons dissembling and slipperiness. It's transcripts for Hillary, it's tax returns for Trump. While Nader supports the building of, of third parties, he cautions what these parties <coughs> he cautions that these parties he singles out the Green Party and the Libertarian Party will go nowhere without mass mobilization to pressure the centers of power. He called on the left to reach out to the right in a joint campaign to dismantle the corporate state. Sanders could play a large role in this mobilization, Nader said, because he is the eye on of the mass media. He is building this rumble from the people. What does he have to lose, Nader asked of Sanders. He's 74. He can lead this massive movement. I don't think he wants to let go. His campaign has exceeded his expectations. He's enormously energized. If he leads civic mobilization before the elections, whom is he going to help? He's going to help the Democratic Party without having to go around being a one-line toady expressing his loyalty to Hillary. He is going to be undermining the Republican Party. He is going to be saying to the Democratic Party, you better face up to the majoritarian crowds and their agenda, or you're going to continue losing in these gerrymandered districts to the Republican in, Republicans in Congress. These gerrymandered districts can be overcome with a shift of 10% of the vote. <clears throat> one, Once the rumble from the people gets underway, nothing can stop it. No one person can, of course, lead this. There has to be a groundswell although Sanders can provide a focal point. Nader said that a Clinton presidency would further inflame the right wing and push larger segments of the country towards extremism. 
we will get more quag- quagmire abroad, more blowback, more slaughter around the world, and more training to fighters against us who will be more skilled to bring their fight here, he said, of a Clinton presidency. Budgets will be more skewed against civil necessities. There will be more Wall Street speculation. She will be a handmaiden to the corporatist and the military-industrial complex. There comes a time in any society where the rubber band snaps, where society cannot take it anymore. So it's it's all it's been in the works, you know. When you have a road, it's called a roadmap. A roadmap is, is you have a destination, and they've put this roadmap out for a long time. But now they're coming out. But they have to perfect the technique. They have to recruit their civilian, you know, sleeper cells. They have to indoctrinate them so that they can strike. Once they feel comfortable enough, they go wide. But that's not democracy. That's not what this country is about. This entire perpetrator community, the state and corporate sponsored bullshit, that's not what democracy is about. That's not what this country is about. That's not what the Constitution is about. And that's not what the rule of law is about. So you know that saying, um, I'd rather stand alone knowing I stood for what was right than to join a group of people who are doing something that's fundamentally wrong? Or if there's not a saying, then I just said it. Oh, everybody's against you, the target. I don't give a shit. I really don't. Because I know what I'm standing for is what's right. And what's being done to me is wrong. Period. So, I don't know what's going to happen. I do think that if Trump becomes president, you're going to... You remember what happened in Chicago? Do you remember what happened in Chicago at the convention where Trump ended up not showing up? That's what's going to happen around the country. You're not going to be able to blindside people and think that you can do that. It's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be knockout, dragout, throwdown. So people should understand that when you start looking at this, think about what you saw at the conventions in Chicago, because that's what's going to end up happening. People are not going to put up with that kind of nonsense. Like this target, they think that they got enough recruited perpetrators. I guarantee you, there's more people who are not targeting than people who are targeting. Your 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 community perpetrator community will be neutralized in a single solitary heartbeat because there are people who do believe we are being targeted. Oh, and I wanted to play this. Um, Susan um, was actually nice enough, and there is a targeted individual um, what is his name he was he's he's african american and he went to washington dc and i know that he was uh, he started speaking out about targeting i think his name is tyrone do is that what his name is or he goes under directed energy weapons so tyrone and then he goes dew so I want to play this. Apparently in May 12, 2016, he, um, he recorded this talking to Jeremy Scahill at one of his speeches about targeting. So he did what I did. I went to the book. It was back in 2013 when his, um, when his uh, documentary was coming out. And, but something happened. And so you can go back to my recordings to talk about what happened. But I handed him 30, a 35-page outline of what targeting was about. 
but he's questioned in front of the audience. So let me play this. Targeted Individual Awareness, Jeremy Scahill. So that was um, Tyrone um, questioning. It says May. What did I say here? Are oh, you posted it May 12th? Um, so we're trying as targets to raise awareness. You know, I did too. Um, I have a recording. But what happened with me was there's this thing called power of suggestion, power of association. And so he, uh, Jeremy, was autographing his book, and um, I was in line. Right before I got to him, so you know the the person who usually you go into a zone. Hi, what's your name? You know, and they start talking to you and all this other stuff. So he was pretty much into the zone. And then what happened was there was a man who was waiting for as soon as the person in front of me finished, before he could look up to me, this guy jumped in and startled him 
and said, you got to see this movie. It's called The Reluctant Fundamentalist. you got to see it, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, you know, Reluctant Fundamentalist, right? So that's the power of suggestion that's going into his head. He's startled. Someone's saying the word fundamentalist, okay? That's a key word. So, and actually, it's a really good movie, though. I have to tell you that it is a really good movie, but that's besides the point. The point was to, to for a perpetrator to jump in during a time when he's in a zone, you know, signing books or whatever, and then right before my time comes, before he can look at me, he's getting the power of suggestion. Reluctant fundamentalist, okay? So the next thing he does, coming out, being thrown out of his zone, is to look at me. So the first thing he's going to do is he's going to put up a defense mechanism because it's the power of suggestion to the power of association, which is the next thing he sees. Okay, these are all psychological tactics. These are those mind, mind mentalists or whatever. These are the manipulation type of tactics that are utilized. So when I got there... He was, he, got, he was in the defense. So it didn't matter what I had to say to him. I could tell that he was shut down because he had been startled out of his zone, and then he hears the word, and then he looks up at the next, the next thing that's going to happen is he's going to be under defense. So all I told him was there's a lot of – I go, I basically congratulated him on his book and all the stuff that he does overseas and exposing these, you know, the, the criminality of what's going on, right, special operations, all this other stuff. But I said, what's happening here? on American soil, and our rights being taken is more important. So when are you going to start fighting for this? So he was, you know, he was like defensive, like, you know, I just got back from overseas and la, 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 la. And I said, well, that's when I knew, okay, don't say anymore. And what I did was I had this um, brochure, not brochure, but I had printed up 35 pages that detail and outline the tactical operations of targeting to include the directed energy and then the cognitive neuroscience, neurotech, offensive use of weaponized, neuroscience and neurotechnologies, and I handed it, I just slid it to him, and then I left. But it's something as opposed to nothing, you know? So I'm glad that he's out there trying to raise awareness, and it appears that it's not like Jeremy just laughed him off the thing. He actually says, you know, that there are things that our government does. If they could do the surveillance without telling Americans, you know, or doing parallel construction where you're criminalizing people based upon fruit of the poisonous tree, then what makes you think that someone, when they're saying, when there's a whole group of people called targeted individuals have all come forward, you know, there's, there's got to be something to it. And he says he doesn't know about that particular thing. But you know what? Maybe one day they will be the journalist who will expose it for us. So good thing, good for you. I'm glad targets are doing that and at least trying to raise the awareness because we're in the struggle for life. We didn't consent to doing this. No matter how many documents they claim they have coerced or gotten a signature on, we did not consent to doing, being a part of this. And it has cost us dearly. At least I, I can't say us because I can't speak for other targets, but I know for me, it's cost things that you cannot pay back. Time that's been stolen out of somebody else's life. Oh, there's a purple one to make some noise, but you know, that that's the dim-witted motherfucking shit for brains that thinks that they gotta do something like that. So sorry about the noise that just came in in the background. But what I'm saying is that there are things that money can't buy or replace, like my spine that's deteriorating, the time that they stole from my life. The relationships that are severed forever, 
the trauma that they inflicted, the physical damage, the, the property damage, and theft. They think, oh, well, you know, no, no big deal. Well, how do you know? That, that item that you, they, they took because they wanted a souvenir might have been something that was a personal reason that may not have been worth anything to anybody, but it was worth something to me because it came from someone that's no longer here. See, they don't think about things like that. They only think about their own self-interest and what they can get out of it and how they can exploit someone else so that they don't have to look in the mirror at who they are as human beings. It's real easy to cast stones. But when you cross the line and you think you have a right to directly interfere with somebody else's life, you deserve to fucking die as far as I'm concerned. Because you're no longer a person who believes in the rule of law or the Constitution. You're like some vigilante out there thinking you can do whatever the hell you want to and it doesn't matter. Then someone should be able to be a vigilante and kind and take your fucking asses out. But forgiveness is never going to happen. And you can fuck this, only look forward, don't look back. We have to look back as targets because of the fundamental damage that they did to our human living lives. So they can take that specious saying and shove it up their asses and rotate on it because it's all about what they did and what they continue to do. You can't let it go because they won't let you let it go. How many times has a target moved to say, I'm letting it go? And they follow to the next location and the next location and the next location, like freaking stalkers. So when they say, well, you, why don't you just let it go and move on with your life? You can sh- kiss my flat Asian fucking ass, motherfuckers. Because at the end of the day, every time I move, we'll say, okay, I got to let this situation go because I got to move on. But see, they won't let you move on. So then they try to tell you, well, look forward, don't look back, shove it up your asses. Because the only people who aren't letting this shit go are the goddamn fucking state-sponsored domestic fucking terrorists. So my bottom line is, you can shove it up your asses, perpetrators, because I'm never letting this one go. Because you know why? Because you guys wouldn't let it go, so why should I? You guys threw the first, what do you call it, fired the first weapons. Targets still haven't fired weapons. Well, a couple of them have, but that's because they were new targets and they didn't understand. But on the whole, target, the first place they go, law enforcement. What has law enforcement done? Fail. Failed. Failed. What have federal agents done? Failed. All across the board. Failure after failure after failure after failure. So in the end, targets actually are on the winning side. Because we stood up for what was right. These guys are the failures. Because they stood down when they should have stood up. That's on them. They only have themselves to blame. So my bottom line... In the beginning, I was willing to let it go, but because they kept on coming, 
and kept on going, no matter where I went, then it's on. And every time they do something, I'm going to be out here documenting in some way, shape, or form, whether it's my computer, whether it's computer net, uh, CNE, which is computer network exploitation, cell phone, whatever. I'm going to document it, and I'm going to post the link. Like with Apple, I posted the link, and then I sent the link to the person whose name I identified. Because my bottom line is, don't ridicule. Don't be dismissive. Because targets, especially those who documented, we can prove. Even before all the leaks come out and the new leaks that come out, and we can, I can still go back to my documentation long before even new leaks come out that I already identified that operation having been done to me on American soil. So you can forget, forgive and forget, turn the other cheek, let bygones be bygones, uh, let bygones be bygones, you know? Because we're dealing with an obsessed group of fundamentalists and extremists, radicalized extremists, state radicalized, state and corporate sponsored radicalized civilian extremists. They radicalize them. So they only have themselves to blame. But you don't ever get to call me a motherfucking name and think I'm going to let you get away with it, especially when I've been telling the truth, period. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.